This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. But we begin today once again with the story that has shocked Canada and is now flashing around the world. The discovery of the buried bodies of more than 200 children at the site of a former Indigenous school in Kamloops. It was an emotional day across the country yesterday as Canadians absorbed this news. Have a listen to this now. Here is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday. Later this afternoon, I'll be talking directly with Ministers Bennett, Miller and Vandal, and with all ministers about the next and further things we need to do to support survivors and the community. We promised concrete action, and that's how we'll support survivors, families and Indigenous peoples. Okay, the Prime Minister speaking yesterday about this horrifying story that has shocked Canada in the last few days. Let's discuss now with my guest, Rachel Blaney. Rachel is the NDP Deputy Critic for Crown Indigenous Relations in the House of Commons in Ottawa. And I'm pleased to welcome her to the show. Rachel, thanks a lot for coming on. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, this is a a story that obviously uh, is shocking to understate it. And I I guess people trying to come to grips with it. I mean, when we think of uh, the discovery of of like a mass grave, we think of faraway countries that have experienced like a genocide you know, but this is not Rwanda. This this is not some other country. This is Canada. Can you just comment briefly on on your thoughts on the reaction to this? Your feelings on it? Well, it is it is extremely horrifying, and I think it tells all Canadians that what happened in this country and what continues to happen is a process of genocide. And what is resonating with me so much is how many Indigenous survivors of residential schools have told people repeatedly of the things that they witnessed and saw that have been ignored. And so I've heard a lot of Indigenous elders and survivors say to me, this was not a surprise to me, and it hurts that it's a surprise to Canadians. But I do hope that this opens all of our eyes so that we can see the history for what it was and what it continues to be. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the report from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission five years ago, I mean, they clearly flagged that this was out there that that there were very likely to be mass unmarked graves on the sites of some of these residential schools so in in some ways we were we were warned that this was possible so i guess in some ways it's not a surprise in that in that respect but it's still so so shocking the scale of it well it is it is shocking and i hope the shock stays with people so that we can get to that next part which is really action and i think when we look at the truth truth and reconciliation document you know, the recommendations or the calls to action 71 all the way to 76 largely refer to the reality that we still do not have uh, appropriate records of the deaths of the children in residential schools and that we need to develop and maintain those so that people can have their history acknowledged and that 
that Canadians better understand. But that's just the ones that were reported. This, of course, is something that we have no idea if any of these deaths were reported. And I think it's important for Canadians to recognize that these were families who knew their children went away to school and often never knew what happened, just that they were gone. And they were completely unable to fight for their children, to try to find a way. All of the tools that we think of to to do those fights were not legally available to these families and that has to be part of the recognition as well speaking to ndp mp rachel blaney of course this is very likely not the only undiscovered site like this tragically in canada and there may be others there is 130 of these schools across the country Uh, there had also been recommendations from the truth and reconciliation commission to uh, make an effort to preserve and protect these sites and to and to investigate and discover what what is there what are what are you guys calling for in that regard in term in terms of like the resources that should be made available to further investigate this well i mean this is so important because when we see this one we understand that there are so many schools across Canada that we have never explored if there are any unmarked graves there. And the truth is, the last government, the Harper Conservative government, denied the truth and reconciliation process, the $1.5 million that they were requesting to get an accurate representation of how many unmarked graves there are across Canada. Um, you know, the truth is, the, the truth and reconciliation process heard from countless witnesses that they were there, but there was no national effort to identify them. And what we've seen in the current government is absolutely no willingness uh, to take that next step. And when we look at things like the fact that, you know, right now, Cindy Blackstock, who's been fighting so hard for First Nations children, uh, receiving a, a win at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, we now know that the government over the last six years has spent $9 million fighting First Nations children in court about children in care. So again, we have to ask ourselves as Canadians, do we continue to want a government in place that continues to perpetuate this racism that means that we never get to that part of of healing and and moving forward together. So this is all of our responsibility to understand what's happening. Uh, You know, I think of the St. Anne's residential school survivors who are still fighting in court for their records to be given to them. And when they get them, most of them are blacked out. I mean, this is happening right now under this current government. So it still hasn't changed. Would you, would you therefore say, like, I I do think it, it is, I don't know, it does seem unseemly in some ways in the, in the light of this tragic discovery that you've got a federal government in court fighting against compensation to First Nations children that were affected by, an, uh, you know, a child welfare system. And you mentioned the ruling by the human, Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. It's been estimated that that settlement could cost up to $8 billion, right? And I guess that's why the, the, the federal government is, is disputing it in court. Are you saying that they should just... They should drop that court case and pay that money out? Well, they've already spent uh, at least $9 million fighting in yeah. court. So, you know, where do we want to put those resources? Do we want to make right a system that has been incredibly offensive, where the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal actually did the work and said, look at this is what happened. It is absolutely systemic racism, and we need to stop it. So it's this whole thing of, you know, we always look at the dollar figure, and I respect that. It's money. We have to always look at that. But we can't move forward as a country if we keep oppressing people in our country. And that is what genocide is. And, you know, when we find a mass grave, this is a call to action. And I hope that all Canadians join Indigenous communities in stepping up for this call to action and saying, you know what, as a country, we're just saying no more 
no more discrimination to a particular group of people. We know it started since contact. And how do people address that? You know, I think about all of these human beings in our country right now who are being re-traumatized, families, uh, survivors of residential school, you know, people who think of their grannies and their parents who went to residential school, all of them are just being hit so hard. And then Canadians who are being hit so hard and having that feeling of shame and hurt and not knowing what to do to make it better. You know, if we're going to make this right, we need to acknowledge what's happening historically, acknowledge what's happening right now, and start to move forward. And the only way we can do it is if we make it right. So let's do that. Okay, following it very closely. Thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue to discuss the discovery of the buried bodies of children at the former residential school in Kamloops. It was an emotional day at the B.C. legislature yesterday where all major parties uh, delivered very powerful messages in the provincial legislature, including the Premier John Horgan here. Here's a short, uh, short bit of that. We're a proud people. We've done extraordinary things together, but we've also done atrocious things together. And collectively, we have a responsibility to face that head on. And after the discovery of a mass grave in Kamloops, it's more real now than ever before. Okay, Premier John Horgan speaking in the legislature yesterday. Let's check in with the opposition now. My guest is Liberal MLA Ellis Ross. Ellis is the former elected uh, chief counselor of the Heisla First Nation. He's running for the leadership of the B.C. Liberal Party. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Ellis, thank you for coming on. Not a problem, Mike. Nice to be here. Uh, Ellis, I follow you on uh, social media, and uh, I've read some of your posts in the last few days, which I I thought were very powerful, and and you wrote about how the discovery in Kamloops here creates a lot of trauma, triggers a lot of memories and pains for Indigenous people across the country and in British Columbia. Can you comment a little bit about that? Well, it's something that uh, is not very well known, uh, especially with today's generation of uh, Canadians, including Aboriginals. Uh, but I first heard about this officially when I started reading about it in our archives in 2004. Uh, amongst other things that were done to First Nations, including the Indian Act and taking away land and, you know, not being allowed to have uh, legal representation. There's a whole suit of uh, issues that happened back then. Uh, so by that time, when I figured this out, I had the same pain that I had uh, when, when I heard the news of the bodies being found in Kamloops. Yeah, and I, I think for, for non-Indigenous people, it's it's almost impossible to comprehend what that what that is like and what that's like to go through what do you think um should be the priority right now and i know you were questioning the government on this yesterday in the house but what do you think should be uh what what needs to happen now in your opinion well i've looked at this issue you know from every different angle for the last 17 years uh, including the aftermath in terms of uh, native poverty the violence of poverty uh our people on the streets and the one thing that I used as a solution was uh, economic development, meaning everybody gets a job. But this one's this one's kind of different. This one's specific to the pain that's being felt by communities and families. And I think, you know, the answer is already there that that's been given out by the the Kamloops ban uh, repatriation. Yeah. Now I died actually followed repatriation in terms of artifacts and totem poles. And uh, I knew the complications there. And I know this process would be highly complicated and heartbreaking. But I, but I think it would bring a measure of uh, a small measure of closure to the families, communities, and even 
I dare say, to, to Canadians because I think Canadians are hurting uh, for what happened in the past just as much as the Aboriginals are. When you, when you think about the scale of the challenge here that we face after this, in terms of the repatriation of, of human remains, the identification of, of family members, the use of high technology, things like DNA, in order to accomplish this, this is obviously a time-consuming uh, process that will take a lot of resources. Are you confident that the resources are in place and that the government is, is behind it and, and willing to fund it? No. No, because, you know, First Nations have been talking about this long before I came along. And it's such a huge issue. I mean, it's residential schools are just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, treaties have been put in place to try to resolve the land issue. You can see how successful that was. I mean, what, three or four treaties signed in B.C. alone and, you know, get nowhere fast. Uh, there's a whole pile of mechanisms that are put in place to kind of address what had happened in the past. And I might add, Mike, this has done in the past. I, I, I'm reading some of the posts where a lot of non-Aboriginals are feeling guilty and feeling bad about it. And I've always gone around and, and told people, I said, look, this is not your guilt to wear. It's just like me feeling responsible for the internment of Japanese Canadians. I wasn't there. I wasn't born. I feel bad. I, I want to make reparations. I want to make up for it. But I was not there. And this is what I try to tell Canadians, that uh, really this is uh, up to the leadership of First Nation communities. And I do, uh, I do appreciate the, the empathy and the sympathy. But I, I don't want to go this. I don't want this to go down an even darker road than it is. I, I think this is a time to pull together, acknowledge the past, and, and actually support all these leaders that are trying to build a better future for all Canadians, not just Aboriginals. Right. Speaking to Ellis Ross, former chief counselor of the Heisler First Nation Liberal MLA, running for the BC Liberal leadership. Uh, this is a, a massive challenge that we face now with over 130 residential schools across the country. Uh, we also have the BC coroner's office involved. We just got a minute left here, Alice, but are you confident that the, the coroner's office has the resources and the mandate that they need in order to effectively investigate this? No, because this is a huge issue. I mean, just think about it for a second. You, you dig up these, these remains and then your intention is repatriate. And then you got to do DNA testing and whatnot. And that's going to cost, but also, what happens if you if you find a bone or a skull that has a scar in it? Well, that's not repatriation anymore. That's forensics. This is a highly complicated process, and then maybe I don't I don't know how it's going to play out. To be honest, uh, but uh, you know I think a lot of First Nations already two hundred and three communities across BC are already anticipating the day. Yeah, and uh, Ellis, I want to thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go now with BC's minimum wage going up to $15.20 an hour effective today. That is a $0.60 cents an hour increase. Liquor servers in the province getting an even bigger raise today, going from thirteen ninety-five an hour to the top wage, $15.20. That is a 9% increase for liquor servers today. The government facing some pushback from business on this, especially for hiking their costs, 
as we recover from the pandemic. Here is Government Cabinet Minister, Labor Minister Harry Baines on that. These changes are important any time, but also especially important this year when many of BC's minimum wage earners have been essential workers during the pandemic. Okay, the minimum wage going up to $15.20. That's the highest of any province in Canada. Let's discuss now with my guest, Ian Tostenson, CEO of the BC Restaurant Association, and I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Ian. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. I, this was a, a previously scheduled minimum wage increase, right? So it wasn't like you guys were surprised by this. You knew it was coming. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we did this four years ago. I think what's, a, you know, when you look at it, the cumulative effects is that you've got to kind of wonder why you're putting, uh, well, I know why, but in the liquor server up from 1395 to 1520, when if you talk to a restaurant owner, they'll tell you that that liquor server is probably making 30, the equivalent of 35 or $45 an hour when you include tips. Um, but what the government wanted to do four years ago, Mike, was to create equality. They didn't sort of feel that that was a fair, and we sort of discussed that. So it is what it is. I mean, we baked this, these costs into the formula, uh, although we didn't realize there was going to be a pandemic. But, um, yeah, so now we're at the, the highest in Canada, and yeah. this will just be, you know, and I think the other side of this, Mike, is that, you know, from what we can see is a lot of, a lot of restaurants are already paying above this just to attract and retain workers, and we're into a supply-demand imbalance right now where we don't have enough workers, and so quite likely these wages would go there naturally just because of supply and demand. Okay, the liquor server minimum wage was previously $13.95. So in other words, if you were classified as a liquor server, you received a special lower minimum wage in, in, real, in recognition of the tips that you just mentioned. Yep. So the government's scrapping that liquor server wage and so that that equates to a nine percent increase in the minimum wage for liquor service. Now that includes that's not just bartenders, right? Like that's wait, waiters. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. it's anybody that 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 is um, is able to because they have serving it right to serve liquor. But you know yeah. where where there's a bit of an issue here is that you know, you get the diners where people will actually you know you might have you know a breakfast diner, but they have they're licensed and occasionally the the server will serve a beer. I mean, they're, they're classified as a liquor server. This kind of stuff benefits that um, classification of worker because they don't make a lot of tips. So that's good. But, you know, when you're you know, in the busier restaurants, um, you know, some of those servers are making two or $300 a night. And as, sure. as we, we respond to the built-in demand for restaurants right now, I, I, I always would say it's kind of positive. There's a lot of money in the sidelines to spend. A lot of people want to go out and spend money. And so I think what we'll, we'll end up invariably doing is, so I think a couple of years ago, Mike, you and I talked about the million-dollar restaurants. So to give you an example of how this works, on a million dollars, your wages would be 30% or 300000 So if you increase it by 8% or 9%, that's close to $24,000 in extra wages. So now your wage bill is 324000 So to make up that 24000 you've got to increase that million dollars up to about one point three or one point four. Because there's, a, there's such a small bottom line return, about 4% before tax. So um, you're going to see um, what one restaurant uh, owner told me today. You're going to see maybe a little bit less staff, bigger sections, price increases on the menu, which I think yeah. will be tolerated. Yeah. And 
I think, though, Mike, the biggest issue we have right now, and this is a pandemic issue, we got to take care of youth. Uh, we are a great supporter of youth employment, but if you and I own a restaurant, Mike, and we go, are we going to hire A with experience at 1520 or B with no experience at 1520? Unfortunately, because we need that production, we're probably going to go with the experience, which means you, youth employment gets left behind. Okay, do you think they should have kept that lower minimum wage for liquor servers? Like, are you disappointed they're scrapping that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think I really do. But I think I would have, I would have said, look, if you are at some threshold on... Um, on tips, then, you know, um, keep it lower. And that, then that gives a bit more flexibility because I'd like to see, and of course, this is not, you know, this is, this is off policy as well too, but there needs to be some consideration for Mike's restaurant to hire a youth because you've got training costs. And so there might be a tax credit or something to say, you know what, Mike, go hire that kid in the, in the neighborhood. And for two months, you're going to get some sort of break because you're going to train them. Because they're tra- training wage. Jobs. Well, Exactly. People hate that word, but because it, it got kind of abused pretty fast. But it, it does make sense in my mind. Didn't we used to have a training wage in BC at one point? Yeah, it, we did, and it just yeah. got it was it was just taken advantage of. So, um, hmm. but I still think that you, as a as a business owner, need to have some recognition and encouragement to hire inexperienced youth uh, employees. Interesting. Okay, speaking to Ian yeah. Tostenson, BC Restaurant Association, the minimum wage. In the province, going up today to fifteen dollars and twenty cents an hour. Uh, you mentioned tips. Now, speaking of tips, do you think there's any danger that if people realize that, well, my waiter just got a nine percent raise, so maybe I don't have to tip as much? <laughs> I don't think so. I think okay. I think the general public are going. They, they probably don't even know this is even happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. Putting it together, I think people will be. What we're seeing is people are erring on being very generous with tips. And the other thing is too is that you know, for the listeners, is that uh, a server pays into a tip pool that the right. servers organize. And so if Mike is the chef and Mike is making $17 an hour, he'll, be, uh, a, he'll benefit from that tip pool. So the server puts in a little bit of their earnings into a tip pool, and that tip pool gets, gets paid to the non-tipped employees. And that might make a difference of 3 or $4 an hour for you. So, you know, no one should ever say that restaurant jobs are underpaid, and we want to be the employer of choice. So as much as the business owners might kind of cringe when I say this, being, you know, sort of medium plus on wages will help us attract people back into our sector to work because we we need people right now. Okay, speaking of that, do you anticipate any kind of a labor shortage here as restaurants start getting back to some sort of normalcy? We've got We've got in-person, indoor dining allowed again with reduced numbers, but the numbers will get back to normal at some point. You're going to need staff. Is there a staff shortage out there? Yeah, there is. We had it, um, Mike, a staff shortage in kitchens, which is still there. I think it's even worse now. But we developed a staff uh, shortage in the front of the house. And that should smooth out a bit. I mean, we need to show the, our employees that we can be dependable. In other words, we're going to stay open and that they can have dependable shifts because you know, I mean, it, that was that was a tragedy of all this. Business would close, and then suddenly, you know, a, a server's not working the very next day, and how do they pay their rent? So I think they'll naturally gravitate back as kids go back to school. They'll start looking at restaurants for the flexibility. But we will see. Um, you know, we had a ter- terrific program uh, with um, trained foreign chefs that we were bringing into Canada because there's such a shortage. We can't find chefs, wow. period. And so that program will come back, and but this that's it's a kind of a neat program because 
these trained chefs that are coming over are are destined to become Canadian citizens. So that's a nice thing. So it's not those are those are what? Thing. Those are temporary foreign workers. Is that what that is? No, no. These are these oh. are permanent. They were coming to Canada on a permanent basis. So they work for wow. two years and then they apply for Canadian status, which is which is nice. Okay. Do some restaurants, given that it's difficult to attract good staff and keep them, do some restaurants actually right now pay more than minimum wage? Yeah, this. Um, I was just reading an article that, um, that it was in uh, Victoria, and one of one of the restaurants in Victoria said we haven't play, paid much less than twenty dollars an hour for the last two or three years. Wow! So um, there, you know, there definitely is. What, what the problem though, when you put the minimum wage up, is that it causes um, if you, you'll start getting compression. So if if it goes to fifteen twenty, and I was already making fifteen twenty, suddenly you're making fifteen twenty. I want seventeen twenty. So you get this inflationary yeah. effect, uh, which is kind of the danger. But, you know, I, I have a different perspective now after the pandemic, Mike. We're part of the community. The community has done a really nice job of supporting this industry. And if we can pay these wages and be part of the community and help people, uh, you know, get through this themselves on a personal level of the wages, yeah. then, you know, through the combination of price increases and efficiencies and stuff, we'll get through this. We really will. Well, how many restaurants in BC have gone under here as a result of the pandemic? Uh, I don't think we know that yet, Mike. But I, I, um, I'm thinking that probably thirty percent of fifteen thousand restaurants won't answer the bell, and wow. so um, you know that's forty five hundred restaurants. But we're starting to see, you know, isn't it funny? Um, well, it's not funny. It's just natural. We're seeing investment back into the sector. People are seeing opportunities. They're seeing open spaces. They're able to get better leases. They buy equipment cheaper. And so there's, a num- there's quite a bit of an investment interest in the industry right now. If you look at the United States, the industry has gone into the roaring 20s. It's gone absolutely crazy. But we don't want to do that here because, you know, we've got to be really mindful, and we will be mindful. I always say we're going to open with passion and lead and pardon me, open with passion and reassure with safety. So it's in our best interest to go gradual and, um, and you know, gradually sort of get back into it. Okay. And that's what the people want. They don't want crowded spaces yet. They're not ready for that. Right. Ian Tostenson, it's always great to have you on here. Thank you for coming on today. Uh, Mike, thanks always for your support. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right, welcome back to the show. There's a little uh, Cirque du Soleil music there. The great Canadian circus company. Have you ever seen a Cirque du Soleil show? Millions of people have. I saw the the O show in uh, Vegas many years ago. I thought it was just just awesome. Very, very memorable uh, show. Cirque du Soleil, though, man, they've just gone through a brutal pandemic here. They had to shut down dozens of their shows around the world laid off most of their employees, really teetering on the edge of collapse. Of course, all due to the pandemic shutting down their shows. Have a listen to this here. This uh, report from Francis Wang, CBS, 
on Cirque du Soleil last year when they filed for bankruptcy protection. Have a listen. Cirque du Soleil has been hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic, and they're filing for bankruptcy protection in Canada and here in the United States. The head of the company says it's the only way to protect its future since they've been forced to close all of their shows. This now means over 3,400 people who were once furloughed will now lose their jobs. The hope is that a new $300 million funding effort will help turn things around. The circus is also looking to raise at least $20 million from their biggest backers. Okay, that's a CBS report there from last year when Cirque du Soleil, the future looking very bleak at the time. This is an iconic Canadian company, of course, founded in Quebec in the 1980s. Huge expansion and success in the 1990s, the 2000s, growing to dozens of individual shows, performing in hundreds of cities around the world, thousands of employees, annual revenue around a billion dollars at its peak, and then COVID hit, and man, it all just came crashing down. Well, there's now a plan for the Cirque du Soleil to come back, rise from the ashes. Let's discuss now with my guest, business writer Jason Kirby, who's just written a terrific piece on this company. On the, it is the cover story in the current report on Business Magazine. Uh, Jason's stuff appears in the Financial Times, McLean's, lots of other great business publications. Jason, thanks a lot for coming on. Great. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Congratulations on the article, which I think is kind of a definitive piece here on the struggles of, of Cirque du Soleil, and I, I recommend it to, to listeners. I've retweeted it here just in the last last few minutes. You started on this assignment be, right before the pandemic hit, I think, right? Y- yes. It was, it was February of 2020, and I had... Uh, kind of set out to do a story on the business of creativity. And I was going to use the Cirque as a, as a lens to kind of talk about how they, you know, how, how they try and balance those two things, because it's a constant struggle, uh, you know, of, of uh, trying to make money, but also trying to be edgy and risky and, and, and take all these risks uh, with creativity and, and, and just basically how they, how they would walk that tightrope um, <laughs> for the cliche there. Uh, but uh you know, that was February 2020. Right. I, I went uh, and I saw them again in March 2020. And already by then, things had started to change. I, I went down uh, to Florida where they had a new show that was starting. And there was already kind of rumblings of you know, some some of their shows had been affected. And people were starting to get a little bit nervous. But it still was not, you know, it just seemed like another world that this could, you know, we could be where we are today. And, and uh uh, but lo and behold, within two weeks of, of me being there, basically there was no such thing as Cirque du Soleil anymore. Uh, it happened that fast. And uh, so I decided to kind of change gears and, and just follow the sto- follow the company throughout the last year as they did everything they could to survive and, and, and uh, keep the company uh, keep the company alive for kind of when they could come back after the pandemic. But it, and it was a it was a twisting long journey uh, to, yeah. to get there. Yeah, sure it was. You had a front seat for it, for sure. And, and people may not be aware of just how big this company is. I mean, people know that it was founded in Quebec. People may be familiar with the Las Vegas shows there, maybe their most popular shows, and people go there. But, man, this is a company that uh, was operating in, in, like, dozens of countries, hundreds of cities around the world, right? Yes, with 5,000 employees for hailing from 90 different countries, you know, as you said in the intro, you know, about a billion dollars in revenue and, you know, every month, um, you know, getting, bringing in about a hundred million dollars in revenue. And, um, yeah, it was it, just, there was one, one of the people I talked to kind of said, had this great quote that really sums it up. He said, it, it, at, at its peak, kind of in January, 
the Cirque was not unlike the British Empire. The sun never set <laughs> on a Cirque show. There was always a show somewhere around the around the world, every continent. Um, and uh, you know, and and with that, they had just thousands of employees constantly out and about in different places around the world. They they really excelled at moving you know, moving people around the world and, and uh, you know, navigating currencies and visas and all that messy stuff. And and then on top of it, you have the, you know, putting on these creative shows. So it was, right. uh, you know, a real, a real multinational corporation, probably Canada's most successful, well, easily one of our most successful uh, kind of exports. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, what an amazing Canadian success story. That's incredible. And you mentioned that when you first started covering this story, it was just a you know, the COVID pandemic came out of the blue and Cirque du Soleil was riding high. When the pandemic hit, were there initial thoughts that maybe they could ride this out um, or very, survive yeah. it? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Well, part of it was that they, they like a lot of people, thought that by the summer it would be over. Um, so there was a sense of, OK, you know, we're going to have to do temporary layoffs. It's only going to be temporary. We'll be able to just you know, weather this uh, the next few months, and then we'd be back up and running. There was one person I talked to who was an acrobat uh, at a show in uh, um, Glasgow, and she had said, like, she was shocked when, when they said they were going to maybe put off the next show until September. And that was seemed so far out, September 2020, uh, that, that, that it might be down for that long. There was just no concept um, you know, amongst anybody, but really, you know, amongst the executives at that point of, of uh, that this would be, that they would go into what they uh, they had. It was, it was kind of like a hibernation mode that they right. initially, I think, uh, thought they'd go into. Um, that obviously started to change, and, and for a number of reasons, partly because, you know, that expansion, that growth that we've seen that took Cirque to that level, well, a lot of that was you know, they were carrying a lot of debt that was fueling some of that growth and fueling some of that expansion. And that put them in a very precarious position that went, once, once they didn't have that revenue coming in every night from all those shows, then you still had those interest payments that you had to make on all that debt. They were carrying like $970 million of debt. Whoa. And that, you know, you can't go for very long. Uh, you know, a couple of months you might be able to... Uh, negotiate with your lenders but as the summer wore on it became clear that this was not going to be um you know a three four month you know ordeal that we would be able to get out of it was going to stretch on longer than that and i think that's when it started to really settle in and that uh, they were going to have to take much more uh, serious uh, extreme action right and then the the pandemic really walloped this company hard Cirque du Soleil all 44 of their shows around the world shut down 95 percent of their staff laid off and man that mm -hmm. must have been a bleak a bleak situation and then they filed for bankruptcy protection what did you think yeah. could you could you briefly explain what what does that mean when a company goes into bankruptcy protection like that what well, does that we, mean yeah sure I mean it, it basically it's a way of just um, shielding, protecting the company so that there's something there. So it's a way of, you know, bringing in the courts and, and, uh, and handling a orderly process of, of kind of going through, uh, you know, a bankruptcy filing. Um, so that you don't have, uh, uh, you know, you, you don't, because ultimately your creditors, you owe your money. They, they, you know, they're at the top of the, they're at the top of the front of the line comes to date out. Yeah. And you don't want to have to take any 
you know, you don't want them being able to just say, well, you know, we want to sell all the assets right now, shut down the company so we can make as much, get as much of our debt back as possible. So it's just basically a process to, to, to make it a more orderly and, and to ensure that there would be a company uh, like a monitor is, is brought in, a court-appointed monitor who kind of takes over and, and uh, make sure that, they're, that, the, uh, that the process is right. fair for all the parties so that there's going to be a company at the end. But Amy, even before that, one of the things that really fascinated me about this was, you know, they had something like 1,500 employees on their touring shows before this um, uh, you know, bef- when things hit in, in March. And all of those people had to be returned to like 70 different countries. And, wow. you know, just the logistical operations of that was amazing. They, you know, they, they, they were working the phones, calling Expedia, booking flights to just get people home as quick as they could because all of the borders around the world were starting to shut. And, you know, in, in about 10 days, they managed to get everybody to where, whatever country they wanted to get to, except for there was a, a handful of Mongolians who couldn't get home because they, uh, the, the, basically the government there had shut the borders to even citizens. Nobody could go in. And uh, so the CERC ended up putting them up uh, in France and in some hotels until, until they were able to months and wow. months later get home. But yeah, it was just a, the, you you were unwinding thirty years, almost forty years of of uh, expansion around the world in a matter of about ten days. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is business writer Jason Kirby, and we're talking about the iconic Canadian circus company Cirque du Soleil, founded in Quebec in the nineteen eighties. Incredible growth from this company it became a global leader in entertainment, and filed for bankruptcy protection in the middle of the pandemic last year. And the plan now for a comeback, uh, I recommend Jason's story on that front page of the Report on Business magazine. Okay, Jason, so we talked about the dark days for Cirque du Soleil uh, last year when they declared bankruptcy. I believe the, uh, didn't the Quebec government step in there to help at one point? They offered, they offered to, uh, uh, they offered a couple hundred million dollars. It, it got really, um, it got really complicated. I won't get into all the details, but basically you ended up having these different ownership groups vying. You had the original owners who kind of uh, all these big pension, uh, sorry, uh, private equity companies from the state and pension fund that owned it beforehand. Well, they lost their bankruptcy and the creditors, the people who the search debt, they ended up getting control of it. So under that, the, you know, the, the Quebec government money uh, wasn't used. They made that offer, but it was only, it was conditional on the existing owners keeping on owning it. So you right. ended up, Coming out like in November, the Cirque emerged from bankruptcy. You had, uh, you know, with new owners, um, it still was kind of like in this holding pattern, waiting for, waiting and waiting and waiting for vaccines to come along and, and to start being implemented and for uh, COVID rates to start to decline. But finally, you know, uh, they were able to, in April, start to see uh, a light at the end of the tunnel and kind of p- put down on paper, like, exactly what their relaunch and revival plans are to bring the company back. Okay, they had some of their credit. So some of their creditors stepped in to take an ownership st- stake, I believe, right? Is that what yeah. happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, basically the creditors, um, you know, they're owed 900, in total, 970 a uh, million dollars and 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 basically they were able to uh you know there was a there was a bit of a bidding war where you had a whole bunch of different companies kind of interested or or poking around kind of kicking the tires to see whether they were able to uh interested in buying it but ultimately under you know under bankruptcy law the creditors have to get first right to 
you know, they have to be made whole uh, or as whole as possible. Um, You know, and so they were able to bid what they were owed by the Cirque as part of their bid. And no, really no other, no other bidder could, uh, could match that. No other company that, you know, at one point Guy Liberté, the, the founder of the Cirque, he emerged and he was, he was interested and kind of seemed to suggest that he was lining up, um, a, you know, a group of buyers to, to make a bid, but nobody could really match that, that grip that the, that the creditor group had. Uh, and they ended up uh, coming away with, uh, with the Cirque, owning the Cirque and, 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 you know, and now everybody's waiting to see what types of owners they're going to be. Are they going to, are they just going to be really conservative, uh, you know, and, and wanting to like safeguard their investment or are they going to kind of, get in line with like the circ ethos of, of, uh, take big risks, break things, try again, you know, just, mm-hmm. uh, kind of push the boundaries. Uh, that, that, that's going to be one of the big kind of questions for Cirque's future. Right. And when you take a look at the, uh, the immediate plans here for reopening, they've announced that two of their longest running shows in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. O and Mystere, Mystere. Yep. will return this summer. They're supposed to start this summer. Yeah, again? Yeah. Yeah. The end of June is going to be, uh, going to be uh, i believe miss there first and then i might have it backwards but one one is launching at the end of june and then the other at the beginning of july uh you know when they pick they they picked that partly because you know when they did the the layoffs they kept people in vegas um on staff so that they could uh more quickly get things back up and running again and start generating revenue so they knew that you know it's much easier to uh kind of get a, a resident show in las vegas back up and running than to try and bring people together from all over the world to a touring show and, and to mount a tour, on, on, you know, on a show in a world where, you know, it's going to be a lot harder to cross borders for the next little while. You're going to need vaccine passports potentially and right. all these other things. So, um, so they settled on uh, Vegas and they basically wanted to see, you know, what the, uh, what the governor in, in Nevada and, and the local, um, local council were going to do in terms of, you know, starting to open things back up and they'd sent signals that they were ready to start opening because their vaccination program had been going well and, you know, COVID case counts had been falling. So um, it's basically, this is, this is step one is to get those two shows up and running, then followed by a few other shows in Vegas. And then there's a couple of the, uh, of the touring shows that they're going to start uh, with one uh, very early beginning next year at the Royal Albert Hall in uh, in the UK um, right. because the UK has been quite uh, quite ahead of the curve as well with their vaccination program. So um, so it's going to be it's going to be a, a it's going to be a slow process of rebuilding that's going to take them well into 2022 easily if not okay. beyond that. It's nice to hear that the company is looks like it's it's going to survive here yeah. at least in in the short term. A proud Canadian company, and we continue to follow it very closely. Congratulations on the article, and uh, thanks yeah, thank a lot. Thank you very much. You bet, Jason. Thanks a lot for being here. Okay.